You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. On today's episode, we have Patrick Brown, the founder and CEO of Impossible Foods, a company that provides nutritious, environmentally friendly alternatives to meat and dairy. Brown is a world-renowned geneticist, a Howard Hughes medical investigator, and the founder of the Public Library of Science, a nonprofit publisher that pioneered the open access business model. He holds an MD and PhD in biochemistry from the University of Chicago. Here's Patrick. Now, Impossible Foods, for those people who aren't familiar, makes meat and dairy products totally from plants. So the idea is that it has a much smaller environmental uh, footprint than any meat that is produced from animals. And their first product, the Impossible Burger, is sold in more than 40 restaurants. And the company is... Two hundred, more than two hundred. Oh, my goodness, probably news. Probably 300 by now. How many? 300 probably rest- 300 by now. Fabulous. Yeah. Great. And tomorrow it'll be 500. Okay. And uh, it is privately held, and investors include Coastal Ventures, Bill Gates, and Google Ventures. So pretty impressive. Let's dive in and get some details. Maybe you could just start out by telling us about what is the Impossible Burger? Okay. Well, first of all, the, the best way to get the answer is go to the event afterwards. <laughs> and try but, it. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a burger that is intended uh, very deliberately to satisfy meat lovers. That's the only consumer that we've ever been designing our products for. Um, and uh, it's made entirely from uh, plant ingredients, but um, it basically delivers the full sensory experience that uh, burger lovers want in terms of flavor, aroma, the cooking experience, if you're cooking it. Um, and uh, But it's a, made entirely from plants. And, um, and it has a, its environmental footprint is a tiny fraction of a burger from a cow. So we've done a very uh, uh, detailed and audited analysis. And it's uh, um, producing it um, uh, involves one-eighth the greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, uses a quarter of the water and less than a 20th of the land area that's required to produce the same thing using a cow, which was motivationally a very important part of it. But what matters to the consumer is that it's absolutely delicious and craveable, and uh, don't take my word for it. Go to, go to <laughs> Vina and, and decide for yourself. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I'm really curious. You know, we've got a lot of people who are engineers in the room, mm-hmm. and this all sounds very great from a from a marketing consumer perspective. But let's talk about the technology. I mean, what has made this such a challenge to do? Why are why are other people not doing this? And you know, what are, what are the biggest hurdles that you have to face in making this happen? Wow. Okay, that's a lot of questions. <coughs> um, so, I, I guess I I can't really explain why other people haven't done it. Um, except that I think um, the entire space of possibilities for uh, doing transformative things in the food system is vastly underexplored relative to its potential and its importance. And I think um, there's there's been very little uh, real innovation uh, in the traditional food industry. And this, um, the notion that um, 
So we started with the idea that it should be possible to make meat, and by meat I mean uh, what I define it in the way that consumers define it, the flavor experience, the cooking experience, the whole sensory experience, nutritional value and uh, affordability and, and so forth, to make meat uh, better in all those measures than a cow can do it or than the existing <laughs> technology can do it. That basically, that the technology that we've been using up to now to make meat is fundamentally limited and, and it's also completely unsustainable. Um, um, but it's just a technology problem. We've kind of con conflated the, the products with the way we make them. We use animals to make these products, but the value to consumers, and we actually have data on this, uh, has nothing to do with the fact they're made from animals. You don't love meat because it's made from animals. You love it in spite of the fact that it's made from animals. And um, the, the using animals as a technology is fundamentally limited. Cows did not evolve uh, as a meat production technology. Um, they uh, were incidentally taken advantage of as a meat production technology. That if you approach the problem as saying, we have to deliver a particular kind of sensory experience to consumers and uh, nutritional value and uh, uh, versatility and affordability um, in a particular form factor and blah, 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 blah. Um, but we want to do it with a blank slate, basically, and with the goal of massively reducing the environmental footprint. Um, and we, we want to do a better job than uh, the existing technology can do. Well, that's completely, what's, uh, that makes perfect sense to me anyway. And it's kind of like the same thing with transportation 200 years ago. You know, people, 200 years ago, people, if you said, I'm gonna make the cart move faster without using the horse, they'd think you were crazy. Um, because people conflated the particular way they made the cart move with the kind of universe of possibilities. Um, but when you, when you step away from that, uh, um, you realize that actually you can avoid all the limitations of the existing technology or you can get rid of the limitations of the existing technology and there's vast possibilities for improving it. So anyway, that's... I uh, love that analogy, honestly, about the cart and the horse. I think that is so fascinating. Um, it's, it's interesting to think, though, about how did you make this decision to do this, right? You were a professor here for 25 years, you, know, you had a very comfortable job doing research. What made you want to leave to solve this problem? I mean, what was the aha that you said, you know, I need to go and leave academics to go solve this problem? Um, first of all, <coughs> so I, had an, I loved my job, and I loved Stanford and, and, uh, and everyone uh, that I knew and worked with here. Um, but I, I never defined myself as a biochemistry professor or something like that. It just happened to be what I was doing at the time. And, um, and I always you know, felt like I want to do the most important and impactful and meaningful thing that I do, can do given the things that you know, I know how to do. And for a long while, it was you know, trying to... Um, develop a better basic understanding of uh, sort of the fundamental mechanisms that keep cells alive and, and how genes work and, and stuff like that, um, both as pure knowledge and also because that's kind of like the foundation for being able to uh, 
um, develop better ways of treating and diagnosing disease and so forth. So I thought, okay, that's pretty impactful, and I was happy doing that. But I, I, um, I had a sabbatical, and I had the opportunity to basically just step back from it and 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 ask myself, okay, uh, what right now is the most important problem in the world that I can potentially uh, contribute to solving? And I realized very quickly that the most important and urgent problem in the world, in my very strong opinion, full stop, is the destructive impact of our use of animals as food production technology, which not just according to me, but according to the UN Environmental Program and many other environmental scientists, is by a big margin the most environmentally destructive technology on Earth. And um, so, okay, that, that's easy, so that's, that's the problem. And, uh, and, one, and it took me a while to come around to realizing that the solution involves starting a business. Uh, in fact, when I got into that thought process, it was like the farthest thing from my mind. But, um, but I realized that um, you know, no one was taking this seriously as a solvable problem. I even, you know, I went to the COP21 conference two years ago, and uh, you know, it was all these people who live and breathe, you know, climate change, and not a word. I mean, I basically, I think, was the only person in the entire city of Paris who was talking about, uh, you know, um, the animals in our food system as a major cause of climate change. And yet, if you talk to anyone there, they'd say, yeah, of course, it, it really is. But, but it was no, on no one's agenda. Why? Because for billions of people around the world, um, the foods that we get from animal, animals are such an important part of the pleasure of living that um, it's too much of a stretch to, to you know, contemplate basically leaving those foods behind. Uh, even for people who live and breathe you know, these kind of environmental issues. And so you have this dilemma that, that um, billions of people and rapidly increasing uh, um, demand for these foods and the way we're making them is completely unscalable. I mean, the, the magnitude of the environmental impact, don't get me started, but uh, is, is humongous. How do you solve that dilemma? You basically separate the things that people demand and desire, which is the functional properties of these foods, flavor, you know, all, all the things that you love about those foods, from the way we make them. And I felt like, okay, actually, if you do that, that's a solvable problem. And that what it, it enables you to do is um, that, that it should be possible to do is to create products that outperform in every way that consumers care about the products that we get from animals much more sustainably, basically deconstructing the problem and, and, and making, uh, making these products directly from plant ingredients. And if we then just put them on the market and let, let the market work, let consumers make the choice, and it's on us to make a product that's so good that people choose over the existing products, but if we can pull that off, we solve the problem, and, and, and at a, a potentially a very fast pace. We set our target as basically, this is our you know, internal strategic target. We want to effectively completely replace the use of animals as a food production technology by 2035. And I think that the only way you can do that, the only system fast enough to make that happen, is the market and products that outperform. So I know that other people are tackling this in other ways. For example, trying to grow meat in the lab, right? Actually not using an animal to grow the meat, but you know, doing it 
in a laboratory setting, you're growing muscle. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about that as an alternative? Um, a couple things. For First of all, I feel like anyone who is seriously trying to tackle the same problem that we're working on, as far as I'm concerned, I wish them all possible success. And um, as far as from a you know, uh, scientific standpoint, I think it's um, really uh, um, you know, a terrible idea. Um, because, because, because the, the problem is that there, for fundamental reasons, uh, there is just absolutely no way to uh, make it economically competitive uh, with the in incumbent system. I would liken it to, I would say, an easier way of doing it. Like, uh, an e you know, in vitro growing animals from stem cells to, to size and blah, blah, blah. Is, is a harder way of doing it than if you start with a fetal calf, you knock out its immune system because these cells don't have an immune system, uh, and, uh, and feed it intravenously for its entire life in the ICU. Um, that's easier than uh, taking a further step back and you have to create the fetal cow from stem cells and then grow it up and, and it's still in, in the ICU without an immune system. So um, that's just, uh, I think, to, you know, but I hope that I hope I'm wrong about this, but I I, I know I'm not. And, um, well, I guess time will tell, right? I also think that there's a fundamental fallacy here, which is that the problem was the failure to disconnect the food from the way we've been making it, not fully disconnecting it. And the, an analogy that I would make is, if 200 years ago people had made the same mistake, they would have said, okay, the way to kind of uh, replace the horse in transportation is we'll culture horse muscle cells, and we'll hook them up to gears and pulleys, and, uh, and that's new and improved transportation system because you haven't recognized that, no, you don't, there's nothing about the horse that you need for this, and there's nothing about the cow that you need for so meat. So what do you need? Okay, so what makes this burger, which I've had a chance to try, and um, what makes it so unique as opposed to other sort of veggie burgers? Why, wh how, what is the secret sauce that makes this taste and feel just like a regular burger? Um, <clears throat> so, um, again, I'm, I'm terrible at giving simple answers, but the, <laughs> the basic secret sauce is that we have an amazing group of uh, scientists and engineers, uh, uh, a very large group who have worked for years on this problem and started out basically saying, step one, in order to make meat that's better than the cow, first we have to really understand how the cow does it. What is the, so to speak, the molecular mechanism of meatiness? Um, uh, understand how meat works as a food um, in fundamental terms so that then we could very deliberately um, uh, find much more sustainable set of ingredients um, to deliver those uh, um, functional properties by understanding you know, what the underlying biochemistry is. Um, so in a sense, that's the secret sauce was, um, I think we approach this the way it should be approached, which is a fundamental scientific problem. And I, you know, I'll just say, we spend probably a thousand uh, as much money on fundamental research aimed at improving the food system. I mean, just treating it as a fundamental scientific problem than we do on cancer. But, but the impact on the world is vastly greater. Even if you just look at 
deaths from malnutrition or, or uh, 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 bad nutrition and so forth are, are greater than all the deaths from cancer, but that's not even concerning the environmental impacts and all the other health impacts and so forth. And yet we, you know, there's been virtually no research on this. So the secret sauce was basically respecting this as an important scientific problem and doing it hard. But actually, ingredient-wise, you know, we had to find proteins that, that performed as major muscle proteins do, not moving animals around, but in terms of what happens when you cook them. And it's important for textural transformations and juiciness and stuff like that. And probably the single most important kind of headline thing was we discovered how uh, the molecular mechanism by which the flavor of meat is generated, and not just beef, but all meats. Um, and, and it turns out that um, it's basically because meat has, everything we call animal tissues have very high levels of a molecule called heme. Heme is the molecule that makes your blood red, that carries oxygen in your blood. Um, it's iron containing, it's, it's the thing that makes meat a great source of iron. And it's basically found in every form of life. Um, and it's, without heme, you would not be able to benefit from oxygen in the air. So basically, when, when your body takes, in some biochemical way, advantage of molecular oxygen from the atmosphere, virtually always, it does so by means of a heme as a cofactor. Um, OK, that's too much in the weeds on heme. But, but basically, um, animals use a lot more oxygen than plants and bacteria and stuff like that in general. And, um, and so to manage all that, they have like hundreds to a 1,000 times more heme than a typical plant does. And the very high abundance of heme is, is what sets meat apart in terms of flavor and aroma and so forth. And that's because besides being involved in all these oxygen transactions, heme is a great promiscuous catalyst of chemical reactions. And so the chemical reactions in meat that take all the simple nutrients like fats and amino acids and vitamins and sugars that are found in every living cell, but turn them into that unique uh, um, explosion of flavor and aroma are catalyzed by heme. And um, that was something that our team discovered. Amazingly, something that I would have thought in retrospect, how could this not be already widely known given how meat is so important to people and, and the flavor of meat is so distinctive and heme is just like in there staring at you. Uh, but it had never been discovered before and so we were able to get patents on it and uh, all of that. Um, yeah. Could I take a heme and put it in something else and give that same experience? I mean, why do I have yes. to create the entire meat experience? Why do I have to, can't I put it in a carrot? <laughs> yeah, okay, I mean, yeah, very good question. And then the same question. experience of, a, of meat and say, wow, the carrot becomes more appealing. Um, appealing the carrot. The, the like answer, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so it turns out that, that heme is also important for, like, it's the critical, for fish flavor, it's also the critical catalyst. It's, it's pretty much, except for dairy products, I think the, the, the unique flavors of things we get from animals are largely unique because of heme. And, but you get different flavor profiles. And so you can take heme and put it in a different mixture of other kind of basic nutrient molecules, biomolecules, and get different flavor profiles out of it. I mean, the reason why fish tastes like fish and, and terrestrial animal meat tastes different from that is basically because fish has 
uh, uh, fish have these um, polyunsaturated fats that they get from algae and, uh, um, and heme catalyzed reactions that turn those into flavor molecules and aroma molecules and stuff like that. So the different precursors affect the flavor outcome. And this is actually, a, 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 for the future, for us, I think a great area for exploration is, you know, right now the, the space of possibilities of meaty, animal-y flavors that are out there are just defined by the animals that happen to have been domesticated or whatever. Um, or even just happen to live on Earth. But, but once you kind of know what the basic flavor chemistry is like, now that whole space is open for exploration. And my guess is that we'll be able to create some really great, amazing, interesting flavors in that broad space with new substrates. Carrots, I'm not sure, <laughs> are, are going to be the best choice, but it would be a very interesting experiment. I think you need, you need a bunch of small molecule precursors. Uh, um, actually. You know, there's even an interesting thing. One of the major ingredients in carrot, carrots, in, in combination with heme, produces the flavor of egg yolk. So um, that's the carotene. So yeah. So so uh, anyway, um, it wouldn't be a crazy experiment yeah, to do. Yeah, we could actually. do that. Okay. Actually, okay, we got to do that. We got to do that. Okay. Heme. <laughs> okay, I'll come over and try it. Yeah. So what is your source of heme? Where do you get it from? So. Uh, we produce it using uh, an engineered yeast strain that um, synthesizes its heme using the same. So this yeast strain can make its own heme, and it needs the heme that it makes to, to live its life. Um, we've uh, turbocharged its, its own heme production machinery so that it makes insane amounts of heme. Uh, and uh, we've also introduced a plant gene because heme Heme basically only works uh, the way it's supposed to work when it's bound by a protein. And we needed a protein that was essentially very functionally similar to the protein that binds the heme in animal tissue, in muscle, which is myoglobin. And we found one. It's naturally found in the uh, uh, root nodules uh, uh, of nitrogen-fixing plants. Um, and we thought we might be able to, to isolate it by digging up the root nodules from the US soybean crop and, and isolating it. Actually, on paper, that seems like a good solution. In practice, it was, as we learned painfully, a uh, completely impractical way of doing it. Uh, and so we switched to uh, producing it in yeast. And that's a very scalable system and, uh, and way more sustainable and more food safe than producing it with cows. OK, so I want to flash back again. I'm going to go back in time. Yeah. You got this idea. You get this aha. And you, I understand you jumped on your bike and rode over to the Node Coastal's like office. jumped on it. That's what, well, OK, yeah. you got on your uh -huh. bike. OK, yeah. you sort of, I'm visualizing this, OK? Uh -huh. You're like, mm -hmm. oh my okay. gosh, I'm going to like drive that. over to the Node Coastal's office and show him my pitch deck. And you walked out with $7 million. Yes, roughly. Yeah. Roughly. Okay. In that, in so that ballpark. what did you say to him? Yeah, suitcase full of money, basically. What did uh, you say to him? And what, what was it that got him so excited that he said, OK, I got to do this? What okay, can so we learn from you? I don't want to speak for Vinod. Uh, he might give a, di a different answer for what it, what it was. I mean, basically, um, what I said, said to him was, uh, and I should say um, for business people here, the the pitch that I gave him, in retrospect, was ridiculous. Um, 
because it was it was because I had never been in the business world. I had no experience with this kind of stuff, and I I uh, uh, had been introduced to Vinod by a scientist friend of mine, who said, "Oh, Vinod will be very interested in this project," and blah blah blah. So, um, so I basically most of my presentation was about how hugely important this problem was to solve. Of of we have to find a better technology than animals for producing these foods because it's so insanely destructive. And, um, and I have, and I, I absolutely believe it can be done, and I have some sketchy ideas about how it might be done uh, if you give me the money. And oh, by the way, um, the global market for these products is $1.5 trillion. <laughs> and, what, and ever since then, I, I say this, but it's not a joke, it's true, that final slide gets closer to the front of the deck. Uh, as I learn more and more about how, how business works. But, um, and I don't know at what, what part of that presentation he was sold. I think he did care about the, the environmental impact. I think the fact that I could say him, look him straight in the eye, which I did actually, and, and I said, I, I literally more or less said this, I promise to make you even more insanely rich than you already are <laughs> if you give me this money. And uh, seriously, because, because I felt like I'm not, I'm not you know, taking charity here. Um, I need the money that you're going to give me, and I'm going to try to accomplish something. And my reasons for accomplishing it may be very different from yours. But you're going to come out OK financially if we do this. Anyway, so he was a good enough sport to give me the money. and. Uh, Great. Yeah. I love the idea that, uh, and it's something that we teach our students a lot, is you know, fall in love with the problem, not the solution, right? So you presented him with a big, hairy problem, and you said, this is a problem I care deeply about, and I'm committed to solving it, even though the path might be somewhat circuitous. Yes, I think it was important that I could, the fact that I knew I wasn't bullshitting, actually, I think is really important. Like, I feel like um, I was, I, I could, look him honestly in the eye and say, this is going to work out really well for your investors and so forth. My reasons for doing it, you know, like I say, are completely different. I want to solve this problem and, and, and stuff like that. But, um, but if, if it was going to be a charitable cause, you know, these guys wouldn't have invested. So obviously, um, that was a big part of it. But the determination, I think this is really important. I, I don't want to read Vinod's mind, but I think it mattered to him that I am completely determined to solve this problem. You know, I'm not going to quit until we've achieved our mission, which is to replace this technology. And, and he knew I was telling the truth because I was. So what does success look like to you? Paint a picture of what success looks like. Um, well, basically, it's that, um, number one, we are no longer using animals as a food production technology. Number two, as a consequence. Like at all, like they're gone. That we put for all, all practical all, purposes. Like I'm not gone. saying that some 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 guy in Malawi may still be taking care of his goat. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, I'm I'm I, I don't want to be like black and white about this, but I'm saying for all practical purposes, that technology is obsolete. And actually, in in a certain way, we're hoping that we can say a year from now that. Um, cows are an obsolete way to produce beef, um, that, that we can demonstrably produce a better product than a cow. But anyway, that's, that's a bit off the track. 
Um, but success, what does success look for, for us? Okay, that's, that's the mechanism. But the consequences are we should be able to, first of all, right now 45% of Earth's land area is, according to the uh, um, International Livestock Research Institute, which is a, uh, an NGO devoted to livestock farming, is actively in use, was actively in use in 2011, uh, either raising feed crops or being used for grazing livestock. 45%, that's an area bigger than North America, South America, Europe, and Australia combined. So if we, uh, and we ought to be able to replace all the ingredients used in all the meat, fish, and dairy foods, not just the terrestrial ones, but meat, fish, and dairy foods uh, worldwide using an area, um, using technology that we already are sort of aware of with about 2% of Earth's land area, which means that we will recover for other purposes 40% plus of the entire land area of Earth. And that's huge. And, and what could we do with it? Well, um, you know, this, a lot of it used to be forests. It used to be natural grasslands. If we restored native ecosystems, we could potentially reverse the catastrophic meltdown in wildlife populations, which is almost entirely driven by the use of animals of food production technology, either exploitation or habitat destruction, allow wildlife populations to recover. There's a catastrophic meltdown. Less, we have less than half as, half as many living wild animals on Earth than we did 40 years ago, overwhelmingly due to the use of animals of food production technology. So we could reverse that. The other thing that's really interesting for people who are interested in geoengineering to deal with climate change is that the best technology that we know about, as far as I'm concerned, for removing carbon from the atmosphere is photosynthesis. And if we allowed the vegetation that was originally on that land 150 years ago just to recover to the state it was 150 years ago, we would pull out of the atmosphere, and there's very good data on this, um, we would pull out of the, pull out of the atmosphere uh, an amount of uh, carbon dioxide that's equivalent to 15 years worth of greenhouse gas emissions at, 20, at 2016 uh, rates. We could turn back the clock on on, uh, um, on atmospheric greenhouse gases, you'd reach a new steady state. So it's not like you're just going to pull all the CO2 out of the air down to zero. But you'll reach a new steady state and buy yourself a lot of time to find more de definitive solutions. So that's another thing that would happen. We had said early on that, that we would define our success by looking at satellite photos of, of the Earth and, and looking at uh, the recovery of um, ecosystems, and, uh, and that's what success looks like to us. Great. So I understand, I, I read about the fact that you were one of the first people when you were in medical school to say you wouldn't do tests on animals while you were in med school. Do you do tests on animals now? So, well, I was the first person in my particular medical school to refuse yeah. to do it. Um, and I'll just say that pretty much every single medical school in the world, in the meantime, has realized that was a completely ridiculous thing to do and useless. Um, so in the end, I was vindicated, although I was made to do some penance for. Uh, but I'm curious. Do, but I'm curious. Do but, you have to work with animals? I mean, do you have to test no. on animals? So, uh, well, I mean, that's that's the question. So, we uh, what you're referring to is, um, in order to achieve our mission, we need to have um, products that are. Um, both from a regulatory standpoint and from a, a consumer acceptance standpoint, demonstrably um, safe foods. 
And from a regulatory standpoint in particular, uh, FDA and other their counterparts in Europe and other places and so forth, uh, essentially require that for new ingredients like the heme protein that we're using, um, you uh, uh, cannot get their sign-off on safety unless you do uh, animal toxicology tests. We tried, uh, we started talking to the FDA five years ago or something like that, and we put together what we thought was a compelling case, we and other experts, a compelling case for why we didn't need to do those tests to establish the safety of this protein. They're, to biochemists, it's a no-brainer, but, and to a toxicologist. But, but anyway, but from a regulatory standpoint, they said, no, you have to do these uh, uh, rat toxicology tests. So we did. And, and um, for me, that was a terrible problem because, um, you know, I, I, I don't even want to get into it, but for, for you know, um, from a, as a model, as a scientific model for the types of things that they're used for, I think that most animal models are ridiculous. And, uh, and they're terrible. And they give results that are, are not only uh, not reliable, but they give false confidence in some case. Uh, um, so that's one thing. But I also consider it basically, uh, from my perspective, unethical, unless there's some absolutely compelling reason. So I don't, you know, I'm not like saying, Never use animals for, like if one of, someone I loved, their life depended on me doing some test on, on a rat or something like that, I'd do it in a heartbeat. So it's not like I'm categorical about this, but for things that are unnecessary, I consider it absolutely unethical to use animals for these tests. This was necessary because um, if we're gonna achieve our mission, we need to be able to sell our product. And in order to sell our product, we need the regulatory approval. And in order to get the regulatory approval, we need to do these tests. And by every measure in terms of the, the greater good for the world, this is what we had to do. But we weren't thrilled about it, or I wasn't thrilled about it, let's put it that way. So I'm gonna open it up to questions from the audience in just a minute, so please think about your burning questions. Um, so here you were a scientist for 25 years, and a research scientist professor. What about that role prepared you to run a company like this? I mean, did you feel like that was a nice training ground, or did you feel like you had to totally retool in order to do this? Um, <clears throat> you know, it's really, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I feel like there's, there's a bunch of, the experience that I had at Stanford, I think, was extremely helpful for, for it. It's a little bit hard to parse it out, but I'd say you have to choose really important, really difficult, challenging, and interesting problems uh, in order to be able to, um, first of all, for me to be able to be motivated to work on them, but also for if you do that, if you can choose those kinds of problems, uh, you can get amazingly great people to come join you and work on them. So my lab was successful, I think, largely because the problems that we were working on were important and interesting and challenging enough that great people wanted to come work on them, so that's one thing, um, I guess. Um, and definitely, uh, um, you know, my style um, compared to a typical business, I think, is much more um, wanting to, uh, you know, identify problems and and suggest, you know, work with people to help them solve them and suggest solutions and stuff like that. I'm 
not very good at the kind of uh, top-down managerial type of thing that you need for businesses. But fortunately, I, I know where to find them, like Stanford Business School. Um, so that's another thing is that I feel like, you know, I, I definitely learned at Stanford what I'm good at and things that I'm very not good at. And so that helped me understand, like, I really need to fill those deficiencies by getting really great people to fill them. Um, I don't know. You also learn how to, how to try to convince people to give you money because um, that's how you fund your lab and so forth. And I guess something else which uh, fortunately hasn't, have, hasn't been called into use yet, but I'm sure will, is that, you know, uh, when you're trying to do really hard stuff and, and, uh, and really do stuff that's, that's outside the box and people aren't used to, you're going to have a lot of doubters. And, and I had the experience when I was uh, uh, at Stanford, I wrote a grant proposal that I thought was, and I still do, the best grant proposal I'd ever written. And, um, and uh, when I got the review back, it was the worst priority score I'd ever seen, not just on my grant proposals, but on any grant proposal. <laughs> um, and I went ahead and did it, and it was a huge success. And it was the best kind of you know, uh, overall thing my lab had done. And so forth. So I feel like perseverance, I'd say, is another really good thing. And, and that to do really interesting stuff, uh, you know, you're motivated because the goal is interesting, and, 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 but you also have to do some really uninteresting stuff to get there. You know, like there's a lot of uh, um, these hard research problems, you know, the, it's really exciting when you get the, the, the results, but a lot of getting there is like doing very repetitive stuff and, and so forth. So I guess being used to recognizing that you have to persevere through boring stuff. To get to the big goal. Yeah. Right, super. OK, who has a burning question? And I'm going to focus on um, students. Tati. Hi, so you said no to clean meat, but how are you going to infiltrate, so to say, the market in developing countries with the impossible burger or impossible chicken or impossible fish, knowing that in these countries, meat production is increasing and people are proud of consuming more meat? So clean it would be the actual meat that people want, and impossible burger would not be the actual. Well, so I think there's can, an embedded can you, assumption. Can you oh. repeat the question? Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, the question was, um, how do we expect to be successful? Tell me if I'm answering. Uh, in international markets, where the assumption is that um, real meat can only come from animals, I guess. And, um, and therefore, the way that we make our meat won't be viewed as, uh, um, you know, the product that they want because it doesn't come from animals. Um, I think that um, there, you know, that's an embedded assumption which I don't happen to share. Um, I think it, it, if if you make a product that, in terms of delivering the fundamental things that people want from that product, which is the pleasure of eating it, which is, you know. From, for a lot of people all around the world, that's like one of the great pleasures of life. If you deliver that, and you can produce it at a cost that is attractive and, um, and it delivers the nutrition and so forth, uh, I think, in my view, you're there. Why would someone say, you know, anywhere in the world, yes, this product doesn't taste as good. Yeah, it's not as good for you. Yeah, it's more expensive. But it's made from animal cells, so I'm going to buy it anyway. I just don't buy that at all. I think it would be just like people saying, you know, I'm going to wait for cars that are powered by horse muscle cells because that's really, you know, 
That's the transportation system I aspire to. They aspire to it because that's been the only way to make it uh, up to now. But I think it's the product and the way you make it, I think people can easily separate those things. Okay, great. Over back here. Stand up, please. I was wondering, um, looking at creating a meat that you know performs also in terms of like macromolecules the same way as actual like animal meat, have you thought at all about um, moving more towards like uh, other animal products such as dairy that have like really disturbing links to health impacts? And also, does the Impossible Burger have the same sort of like negative um, health components like trans fats and cholesterol? Right. So can I just repeat it? So the question yeah. is, have you considered dairy, which also has a lot of issues, and have you considered the other health issues around meat, with, like cholesterol? Yes and yes. So um, yeah, when, when, you know, when I founded the company, our goal was not to replace meat production. It was to replace animals with food production technology. And when we started working on a technology platform, it was... Um, relatively agnostic as to what, um, what product it would be for. And we were, of course, actively interested in um, dairy as a target. Um, and in fact, at, uh, in the first year that we existed, just based on some, some work, actually most of which I had done before I started the company, we actually spun off a company that's making uh, plant-based dairy products called Kite Hill, makes cheeses and yogurts and stuff like that. It, we spun it off because basically, although it's it's a great company and the products are great and you know whole food, it, they're selling very well. You're not going to change the world by making products that, as these were, uh, are are made um, using almonds as a precursor because it's just the economics don't work. Um, so, um, but we're looking at are expensive. Yeah, it's basically yeah. You, you're not going to be able to be um, cost competitive, and so I felt like, but still, it was. You know, it's a very it's successful in, in 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 selling and stuff. But anyway, that's an aside. We cared about dairy, but we had at uh, um, at some point once we felt like we had the basic know-how about you know how to make the products in this space, and we had the toolkit, you know, at least a starting toolkit. We had to make a choice because we can't launch ten products at once, um, and we had to choose what are we going to launch with. And for us, the ground beef was an obvious choice. And I think, actually, it's interesting, when you think about the dairy business, um, if we're successful in uh, um, making a product that can outcompete ground beef from a cow uh, in the marketplace, that actually is very disruptive to the dairy industry. Because that's where those cows wind up. And it's actually a non-trivial fraction of, you know, of their revenue. Is is from selling the, you know, older cows and whatever uh, um, as meat. And if we can take away that market, it's disruptive to that industry. But we're also working on milk. Where uh, we early on we had some actually very cool cheese prototypes. We just decided we didn't have the bandwidth to market them. But we'll definitely be launching dairy products when we have the bandwidth. Thank you for your talk. Going back to focusing on the problem, uh, Impossible Food is a plant-based solution. Tina mentioned lab-grown meat. What are, if there's any other solutions to this $1.4 trillion problem? So the question is, we talk about growing meat in the lab as well as reverse engineering it. Are there other solutions people are attempting? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. 
I don't know of any categorically different solutions people are attempting. I think that there's something that is going to be part of our strategy down the road. We started off by producing a product that very clearly was targeted at replacing a particular existing product by delivering the things that people wanted from that particular existing product. Another strategy might have been, well, if, if we have something that is categorically unlike that product, but, um, but that will, uh, in terms of people's eating and purchasing habits, uh, compete successfully against it, might not be exactly or even close to like meat, but nutritionally it fills the same spot, and, and in terms of the taste that satisfies it's similar, um, that's a very real possibility and something that you know, we're, we're definitely thinking about down the road. But, um, but if you're talking about different technologies for producing food in this space, um, I think there are other, you, you, you know, for example, you could produce your ingredients entirely by fermentation or by other means. And the question of whether you do that just comes down to which is the most scalable and economical way of doing it. And because um, plants, you know, uh, um, are very efficient at producing biomass directly using sunlight and, you know, air and nutrients from the soil, um, it's hard to beat that in terms of the fundamental economics. So that's why we thought, and the fact is they're loaded with, you know, a huge diversity of potential to protein and small molecule tools and so forth. So we felt like there'd be enough there and that that was, but you know, there are other, that's a good question. Back and back. Um, or sorry, answer, give, give an answer to that. So you could um, theoretically uh, genetically modify plants. You could do that um, at, the, at the production, or I guess at the harvest instead of at, uh, at the end, which is sort of what uh, companies like Impossible Foods and uh, Beyond Meat do. They want uh, plants that grow meat? Yeah, yeah, just, just make plants more similar to meat when they grow out of the ground instead of so so my question is um, so a lot of the times you, you mentioned both uh, the ethics about um, you know caring about uh, animals in factory farming and uh, environmental aspects of eating meat. Um, a lot of times those would be prioritized differently. So for example, dairy has a very uh, very bad effect on our environment, but it's also not, it's pretty negligible compared to the, you know, to other animal products um, and how it affects, uh, the number of animals that it affects. So how do you, how do you sort of prioritize those two, between uh, those two? Um, I, I'd say, to, first of all, I feel like in general, both of those things are, are synergistic in terms of reasons to do this. Like, um, so what you're just saying is, in, in both cases, they're both really good reasons to do all the stuff that we're doing, but, but the effect of, of them and the decision is different for different products. And I would say that, by and large, um, we're focusing on environmental impact as the key metric. And even if you're just talk, thinking about it from an animal welfare standpoint, basically, uh, in terms of the uh, um, destructive impact 
on animals on planet Earth, uh, um, the uh, the destruction of habitats and and you know on on the numbers uh, um, is a huge factor there. So so even just if you're just saying let's just focus on minimizing the environmental impact, you're you're accomplishing a lot there. Anyway, that's just so you're you're just asking how do we take those considerations into account and priorities. I'd say most of the time they're not in competition, and to the extent they ever are, we'll probably lean toward the environmental impact side. So let me ask a, another question here. Yeah. So we had a program recently that was really mind-blowing to me. It was about, it was a workshop that we did on uh, entrepreneurship in the food industry. Mm -hmm. And it was just amazing to think about how every type of technology is, touches the food industry, mm -hmm. and there's so much room for innovation. Mm -hmm. What are other areas of the food industry that you are most excited about um, seeing really big innovations? Oh, man. Well, I would say, <coughs> in terms of just from a brainstorming perspective and what the possibilities are, I think that you know, the foods that we currently have, if you think about the kind of high dimensional space of possibilities and all the ways foods can be different in flavor and texture and all that sort of stuff, the foods we have right now are just tiny, tiny few points in that space. And there's a huge possibility, I think, for exploring it and making entirely new foods. So that's very interesting from a, from a just brainstorming and theoretical standpoint. From a mission standpoint, we're there's a huge potential for innovation in um, the, uh, the way we produce the raw materials for food. So for, for example, um, uh, you know, one of the things that we're spending some effort on is um, premised on the idea that the major uh, protein for human nutrition is going to be a protein that right now is a negligible fraction of the human diet and is not even considered a, uh, when people think about nutrition. Um, it's a protein called Rubisco. It's the most abundant protein on Earth. It's the 40-ish percent of the total protein content of any leaf, uh, and that's partly why it's super abundant. Unbelievably great nutritional properties, great functional properties, and so forth. The problem is that um, it's Concentration, you know, like there's protein in spinach, and most of that is rubisco. And uh, um, so plant, plants have a non-trivial amount of protein. But in order to get enough of it in your diet, you'd have to eat ridiculous amounts of cellulose, which your body's not adapted to, to digesting. So that's why we don't do it. But if you say, well, actually, we don't, we don't have to eat these plants in the native form. If they've got a valuable ingredient, we can figure out how to isolate it and scale it and so forth. And the reason why this is so interesting is that it, there are ways that you could, uh, if you could economically scale a process for isolating it in a, in a, in a functional and food-safe form, uh, you could produce all the protein that the world needs uh, in 2050 with a couple of percent of Earth's land area just growing alfalfa and isolating rubisco from the leaves, which is actually an idea that we're, we're actively pursuing. And another even wilder idea, which nobody at the company takes seriously, but I think some, but someday, uh, I think is is it may be feasible, but it is it is a long shot, is that 40%, 45% of the photosynthetic productivity on Earth is phytoplankton, and unlike uh, terrestrial plants, their life cycles are really really fast. 
like a couple of days. So if you if you harvest, you know, a billion phytoplankton, they re restore their numbers in a few days. Um, no irrigation, no fertilizer, no pesticides, um, and um, a less than a percent of their productivity would meet all human calorie and protein requirements. So to me, that now nobody wants to eat plankton per se. Unless you're a whale. <laughs> yeah, but it works for whales. And that's actually the interesting thing is that you, people don't think of plants very seriously as a protein source. But for most living organisms on Earth, they are the entire source of protein. Most of the protein in the diet of animals categorically on Earth comes directly from plants and a large fraction of that from phytoplankton. Anyway, point is, if you, if you have a way of isolating out the, the, the valuable nutrients from those things and, and make, using them to make foods that deliver the pleasures that people want, okay, that, um, that's, a, that's a whole new game. It's technically very trivial, to, uh, very, very non-trivial, to figure out a way to harvest these things uh, economically and sustainably and so forth. But to me, it's like a very valuable thought experiment and something that years from now when we have the resources, uh, um, I, I want to um, pursue. And, and, and I just will say one thing, you know, people often say, well, that, isn't that kind of like very processed to, to isolate ingredients from phytoplankton and turn them into meat and so forth? But I'll just say that everything in the food system, basically, the whole history of food is figuring out what parts of what plants and animals are, are delicious and nutritious and good to eat. And instead of just flopping them on the plate, figuring out ways of, of preparing them and combining them that make something that's more than the sum of the parts, that's the whole history of food. And that's what we're talking about doing. It's definitely not at all deviant in that sense. OK. Over there. I have a question regarding the uh, urban versus rural divide that may exist with this product, particularly since the launch of Impossible Burgers has been centered in very urban, very liberal, idea, ideal, ideologically centered areas. What does the, has there been any perception testing or any sort of testing done uh, by Impossible and in terms of this particular meat product, not necessarily by culture meat, because it has certainly wildly different viewpoints? I would say we haven't systematically looked at urban versus rural. We've sort of unsystematically got some data on it that I would say um, is encouraging in a lot of ways. First of all, I would say that we have data, c compelling data that basically says what matters about, just say meat, what matters about meat is the sensory pleasures, the, the pleasure you get from eating, and the craveability, the, the nutrition, and, and, and the cost. That's what, that's what people are, are focusing on. And, for most Americans, um, and we didn't focus heavily on rural, but in the sampling it was, it was you know, broadly geographic uh, uh, across the US, the large majority uh, love their meat not because it's made from animals, but in spite of the fact that it's made from animals, and would actually prefer and pay a premium for an identical product just because it's made from plants instead of animals. And that's across the country and by a large margin. Which isn't to say that that's uniformly true. But my guess is that any, the thought experiment is, doesn't matter where you are, if someone says, here's, here's your choice. A product that is inferior in flavor and nutrition and costs more, but happens to be made from animals, versus a product that is 
better in flavor and nutrition and less expensive and is made from plants, I would say the vast majority of people, no matter where they are, would make that second choice. But we'll, we'll have to find out. The other thing is that um, if the concern is that somehow this is disruptive to rural economies, which is a, a legitimate concern, I'll just say that um, the, uh, um, we share that concern. And this is not, uh, you know, this is, this is, we're trying to create a product and letting consumers choose. We're not, we're not attacking anyone here. But we recognize that it would have that impact. And we're actively looking at ways to, to, to integrate with the existing system and not, and not um, I mean, completely replace animals with food technology, that's for sure, but not, not kick out the people who are working on it. So now. I'm going to ask you the last question. So here you are in the middle of this very exciting journey. But if you flash back to when you were a student and you were sitting in a lecture hall like this, what do you wish someone had told you? What do you wish you knew when you were 20? Hmm. Good question. I mean, a lot of things. But what sort of general advice? Not about, you know, what sort of general advice do you wish someone had given you? Um, to some degree, it was my phenotype from the get-go, but it's definitely been something that, that has been reinforced repeatedly by experience. Uh, and that would be um, don't waste your life on things that don't matter. And, and you know, uh, I mean, of course, there are limits set on you by the fact that, you know, you have to make a living and you happen to live some particular place and whatever resources and all of that. But don't, don't set limits on the uh, kinds of things that you can do. I feel like most, the reason that nobody has done this before isn't because no one could have done it. It's because nobody decided that actually, it's, I'm going to make it happen. And it's, it's, in other words, it's because people made the assumption that the fact that it hasn't happened means it can't be done or something like that. So I feel like one thing I would just say is, I don't know, don't cap your own ambition. Do things that really matter for the world. Um, I feel like that's what you're going to be proud of when you're a you know, geezer like me. And you know, do things that will make the world better if you're going to have kids for your kids and grandkids. And um, I sort of felt that way. But I, I, early in my, when I was 20, I was kind of still in the mode of sort of, um, uh, sort of sleepwalking through you know, the kind of academic trajectory and stuff like that. Uh, I hadn't fully formed that. but And I feel like, in a way, if I had gotten started from that philosophy earlier, I would have spent more time in my career at Stanford doing what I did six years ago, which is stepping back and saying, OK, I'm just going to completely look again, start over. What's the most important thing I could be doing now? Um, well, that is yeah. totally terrific. And we wish you the best of luck. Please join me in thanking Patrick. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.